This is Feyua. Hey guys, this is Onyeka, aka Yeka. So, Amayo can't, is not with us today. She can't join us today because she has some work stuff going on. Amayo, we miss you. So we have a special guest. Special guest, Wandile, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do. Hi, my name is Wandile Mtiane. I'm from Durban, South Africa. I am... Um, the founder and CEO of Ubuntu Design Group that uh, designs and builds um, architecture that um, helps communities, low-income communities. Uh, it's based on the premise that if apartheid architecture could segregate and oppress, then uh, community-led design can enable opportunities for all. Nice. So that's this week's topic. So we're going to be talking about housing informal settlements inequality urban planning all of the things that go into like creating a city and i just want to start with our first question is how do you think informal settlements come to be especially the ones that we're familiar with whether in lagos or in durban mm-hmm. um yeah how do you think informal settlements came to be i kind of know the history of how informal settlements in South Africa came to be, but mm-hmm. um, I'd love to hear from you, Wandele. Well, that's a, that's a good question. I think um, a lot of countries have struggled with informal settlements in one way or the other. And I think the major reason why you have inf- informal settlements is due to rural to urban migration, where there's, you know, this urbanization and that's where the jobs are. So people want to move. Uh, um, and so what they do is they move closer to the towns and they use whatever materials at their disposal uh, to to build. And that's how you have shacks and informal settlements for, for, for most of the time. But in South Africa, you also have townships, which are created by the apartheid government uh, intentionally to um, segregate, but also to keep uh, non-white people at a lower income and to be dependent on the regime of the apartheid. And when you say, so like, can you give us more color around like the history of like kind of, so, so black people were not allowed to live in like the city centers and they were just pushed out. Can you, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when you go to America and, you know, uh, as a person of color, a black person you are a minority and then there's, you have to deal with, you know, racial things, et cetera, and their history there of oppression and slavery. But in South Africa, it was opposite where it was tipped, uh, where black people were the majority, but they were still being controlled and oppressed by the minority, which were uh, the apartheid government. So what they did was they designed these um, townships and uh, settlements where, they were designed like barracks, like work, work, uh, labor camps. Oh, and wow. they were put, uh, they were put, uh, 
40 kilometers away uh, from the city center. And mm. uh, they, were, they built the houses to be 40 square meters. And uh, that forced people to spend 40% of their income commuting back and forth, which meant that they could never financially come up mm. from that low income level. And uh, the 40 square meter house was hard to add on to and build onto. So it forced them to stay within that low income. And they did not have any parks for recreation because that would have political implications when people gathered for the white apartheid government. Um, so it's interesting how, you know, the problems that we're facing 24 years post-apartheid were designed uh, during the apartheid uh, regime by architects and how architecture has such an impact that outlasts even the particular regime. One of the prep materials I was reading, those talking about Kenya, for example, and the slums and and the fact that, you know, all of that, the, the, the base, how the, the creation of the slums dates back to colonial times where, you know, the city centers were created for the Europeans and the idea mm-hmm. was just that black people, the you know, Kenyans were supposed to come to the city and just provide labor for mm-hmm. for exportation mm-hmm. of goods and just like kind of fund the Europeans' lifestyles and just make them wealthy. Mm-hmm. And there was no thought to okay, where will, will people live? Especially when they made such an emphasis on okay, everything is happening in the city center. Everybody moves to the city center, and yeah. Um, so we're kind of talking it Nigerians. If anyone, Oyeka, do you know much about our informal settlements in in Lagos and and how they came to be? Actually, don't know much about them. I was hoping, yeah. Yeah, I don't know much, but actually, I forgot to look this up while I was doing the reading for this recording. Um, what exactly is the definition of an informal settlement? Like, what does that include, and what doesn't that include? True, that's a very good question. So, to my understanding, an informal settlement is something that was not included in, like, city planning, like, official city planning. Yes, yeah. So, they just, like, kind mm-hmm. of just sprung up from convenience mm-hmm. or just, and they, you know, people never, when they never, people don't get chased away and just other people are like, oh, this seems like a comfortable enough temporary living situation mm-hmm. and it just, like, becomes they longer just than temporary. <laughs> yeah, okay. it, yeah mm-hmm. it becomes both homes. When do you um, you're the professional. What's what's your definition of an informal settlement? I think you definitely nailed it. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a place that was zoned or planned or as or part of a particular uh, jurisdiction for housing, but it's uh, a place where people came and built. And it's often land that was not that is not necessarily owned uh, by the people who build in it. Uh, sort of squatter camp. Uh, that's another name that's used or shanty town or. So yeah, it's a it's a place where people come and reside uh, without permission. Mm. Um, this is the thing. I don't know much about like the official history of informal settlements in Lagos in particular. But when I was looking, when I was watching um Alute Mayng's, uh TED talk, um, she mentioned some of the things she discussed in her lecture aligns with what Wendele said earlier about, you know, migrants, people leaving wherever they were coming from uh, to settle in a city and being faced with like a high cost of living and not being able to afford, I guess, 
quote unquote like formal settlement then decided to use whatever resources they had to make their own I guess community and settlement and so one example the big the meat of her talk was about um fish fishing uh settlements in Lagos and Lagos mm-hmm. is is a coastal city so it's right by the Atlantic mm-hmm. um and so she talked about in particular about those settlements and it makes sense that you know wanting to live close to work and so wanting mm-hmm. to be right by there but you know no housing being there and people who move to that area wanting to um you know, essentially create a place for themselves to lay their heads. But I don't know much about if there are any other, going back to the previous topic, like remnants of colonization, if that had an influence on those settlements in particular. I think definitely it does. Um, because, you know, these cities were not designed for the people who move to the squatter camps and informal settlements. They were designed for the rich elites, which was often white people across the whole of Africa who had colonized and built these cities. Uh, so these people were their labor source. And uh, hence the formation of these informal settlements because these people who had been displaced from their land and uh, from their normal way of living now had to adapt to this new system of industrialization and working for them, for, for these people who had displaced them. So the colonizers. Um, Hence the rapid spread of informal settlements. And I think, yeah, because like one of the one of the quotes from one of the readings I sent was like um, the the author was like cities were not designed around affordability for the urban migrant, but for extraction of labor for the colonizer. Hmm. And it's just true because like the pre-colonial city planning, or like sorry, colonial city planning was centered around the comfort and safety of colonizers, and um, yeah, so. My next question. But then, sorry, but then, so that's just one part of it. So, because when they left, then, so so I'm just starting to think about why settlements, like, in particular, the fishing settlements happen as opposed to there are other people who move to cities and can't mm-hmm. afford to right. live in those cities, but don't necessarily create settlements like they just end up homeless you know mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. squatting in other people's houses whereas the idea of this is i'm just using the fishing settlement because that's what was in our reading and that's what i'm aware of um it's built around we're all by the water we're all fishermen or our occupation mm-hmm. has to do with fishing so that also giving rise to this settlement happen like there's something there's something that unifies those the people in that settlement. Yes. And- mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, informal settlements. You know, I grew up in one. Oh, actually, I moved to a couple of of informal settlements growing up as a kid. If there's ever a community with the highest sense of community, it's the informal settlements. Uh, this concept called Ubuntu here in South Africa, which means I am because you are, or I am because we are. And I think it's best exemplified by the lifestyle of people living in informal settlements. I remember as a kid, like my mother would be cooking and mid-cooking, she would realize, oh, I don't have onion or she runs out of onion. And then she, you know, uh, pulls me aside and tells me to go and ask for onion next door. I run, grab half an onion next door. She, I come back, she continues cooking. You know, so that's sort of the, the lifestyle, like it's interdependence. Um, I am because you are. and 
you know, a lot of people, when they look at informal settlements, they think, oh, these people are lazy. Uh, these people, you know, are not creative, etc. But actually, people living in informal settlements or shanty towns are some of the most creative individuals in the world. Mm-hmm. These people can literally make cities and communities and homes out of any materials that they have at their disposal. And they live in them. And these are the same people who build our stadiums, who build our schools, uh, who build our cities. The reason why their particular structures aren't as strong as ours is not necessarily because they're not creative, but it's because they don't have the same resources and opportunities as we do. Going back to your question, if anyone about like our own, like the the fishing informal settlements, and I th- I think it's also about like when these settlements came about, um nobody was paying attention to them so they were just like they, it wasn't considered prime land it wasn't it was just like oh these people are just here fishing they're providing food for us so again about like not necessarily caring about the about the most vulnerable people it's like oh let's just leave them wherever they are and you know there was no planning in terms of how do we give them the basic amenities how do we make sure that like there's power there's mm-hmm. water there is whatever they're just the the government essentially just like says fuck you and just leaves them Mm. until it's time to steal their land and they're like oh apparently this is prime Mm -hmm. waterfront yeah we can get a lot of money for this let's evict people from their land Mm -hmm. um yeah so i it kind of ties back to the theme of how unintentional our government or people have been and how it's very oh this doesn't currently affect me let's just unlook yeah this is and yeah and and also i think because i'm talking about um makoko and otodo bami mm-hmm. those those settlements um also those communities are pretty insular too it's not it's not easy as an outsider to kind of yeah they're pretty insular they can be insular and um when if when all their economies around like fishing just one thing of oh we're fishing we're taking fish to the mainland and that's all we kind of need um it's kind it's easy for people well this is not an excuse but it's also is like they're kind of out of sight out of mind or they're just there and yeah. i think it's kind of low-key <laughs> fucked up that they're now like it's kind of like part of our scenery you know, like it's a it's a canonical thing yeah. when you're driving on third mainland, like taking yeah. a picture yeah. of. The That's what I was gonna say. Is it actually out of sight, out of mind? Because they are yeah. pretty visible. They're in. Yeah, they are pretty visible, actually. Yeah, they just don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so basically, with informal settlements and shanty towns, it's um, often you know the elites and the government would not care until they realize it's prime real estate mm-hmm, as yeah. the city grows and then all of a sudden they want to gentrify the mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. And then when they want to gentrify the place and then it's all all of a sudden becomes this huge deal right. that, oh, these people are living in land that they don't have title dates, right. oh, they don't have water, mm-hmm. oh, sanitation, this is not good for people to live. And then they, <laughs> they bring up all these social issues that they could have brought up 20 years right. ago when mm-hmm. those people were benefiting them. And then they get evicted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's usually how it works. 
I, I remember like when I was going through, you know, the articles and stuff, just thinking about my first interaction with like informal settlements and Makoko was my very first one. And I just remember like thinking to myself like, oh, this is pretty inge- like ingenious and cool that this, I mean, as a kid, like that they just like, you know, live on these stilts and they have like a whole community of people. Um, mm-hmm. And then like, you know, getting older and even some places in Leckie, um, whereas like, cause I realizing like there is this community and oftentimes what I find is like, aside from the fact that, you know, inequality and poverty or even occupation makes these people come together, I find like there's a lot of like language, um, what should we call it? Like language is one of the things that also, uh, unify those communities as well. Cause I know that like there's some places in Lekki, um, cause our, church started up in you know one of those areas that by whatever seventh tenth roundabout that they have in lucky um and language is you know you hear some of these dialects and you're like wait what language is that and it might be yoruba but it's like a different you know dialect so people maybe one person comes from a town you know somewhere outside of lagos and it's like oh well i know people here and then it just keeps building and building and building and like you guys said until you know the government realizes or they know that oh well since we're trying to create i don't know eco atlantic or whatever the heck they're trying to create uh we can kick these people off (laughs) and and it's just the most inhumane thing i think and I get so frustrated because I'm like, so this whole time you you think you have the right to just go and dredge places and kick people out and be like, well, now this is this land is going to be, I don't know, 50 million and that's OK. And so then what happens to these people? But complain that there's crime and complain that there's all these things when mm-hmm. this was their life and, and they they were out of your way. They were fine, like doing their own thing. But it isn't until you want to be manipulative that you kick them out. Anyways, I'm done. I'm down from my soapbox. Wintele, <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us about your experience living in an informal settlement? Like, can you tell us more about that? Like, in terms of community, um, in terms of, like, the amenities that were present, in terms of, like, you know, when you, le- when you left for college or when you left and when you, when you go back to visit, like, w- yeah. I'm just really curious to know everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's informal settlement, then there's township. Townships, which were these um, communities created as sort of as working labor camps by the apartheid government. So that informal settlements are very informal, like more dense, etc. Townships are like a step up, a little better, but, you know, still carries the same... Um, attributes as a uh, informal settlement so i got to live in both um i want to put a disclaimer i think before i explain sort of my um my experience that i know my disclaimer is it's tough to live in an informal settlement uh, but what I'm about to say is just like all the great stuff <laughs> that happened there. That's fair. It's your perspective. <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, like what, what it was like. But then again, I was a kid growing up and I didn't have the same burden that my parents had to take care of me. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I had a great time, um, you know, playing soccer in the dirt with other kids and, um, you know, like this idea, this whole notion of community and all the, we would come together and our shacks were too small to play house in. So we were forced to be creative and build a little shack next to a home shack to where we would build our own little shack. And that's where we played house in and it would fall seven times and it will 
figure out innovative ways of making it stand and then someone would go steal rice from their home someone steal beans and then we would cook them which is probably not very <laughs> fire safe but it's just fun you know and we played house and cooked and did all sort of stuff there uh it sort of shaped my experience and the experience of other kids that i grew up with with and i think that's where sort of my um, th- that's where my ambition uh for architecture started uh that's where i learned how to be resourceful that's where i learned how to be creative because if a new member would come into the community like the whole community would come together and help them build a shack for that person to live in mm-hmm. uh using their scrap metal from you know from gypsum board to literally a microwave lid you know whatever you find uh tires were often put on the roof to sort of hold it down and rocks um but then on the other end when it's rain you know we lived in fear because one you had like you know water dripping in and gracing your bed covers and uh or you you were also you were scared that this mud brick house could fall mm-hmm. on you um and so basically what i learned was that although you know this sense of community and ubuntu was you know was genuinely amazing but it's it, that wasn't enough because we still lacked dignified homes mm, dignified yeah. places to to call home and a lot of shack fires happen and a lot of people die because of that and um a lot of homes like that can fall on people and people die so that's sort of what spurred me to want to study architecture so that I can come back harness the creativity that all these people have and use sort of the architectural knowledge and structures and etc to build contextual uh, communities that best reflect their culture and their shared values and their ingenuity so that's that's kind of a that's a great transition to because one of the questions i had is that how do we support people living in informal settlements without being paternalistic how do we um how do we be better neighbors to people who live in informal settlements ah, i'll take a stab at it um so one thing is like so there's a lot of government initiatives that have been happening in south africa and around the world to solve this problem of low income housing right mm-hmm. and uh i'd say 99% of all those prog- programs have failed And the reason why they fail is because you move people from these informal settlements you put them in a random place in the middle of nowhere and you build them these square boxes you call houses and uh you put them there. Uh so here's here's a couple of problems with that. One, every every person that you design a home for, every paying client you design a home for, you consult them first mm-hmm. before you first find out right. what they need and then you design as per what those people need because they know best how they live. Uh, than you do mm-hmm. but for somehow uh for some reason when it comes to low income families we forget that they have individuality and they mm-hmm. have needs so mm-hmm. we just build one size fits mm-hmm. all and expect that to work yeah so, so that's problem number one number two that we 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 don't realize the fact that the reason why they are in an informal settlement is not by choice it's but because they want to be closer to work mm-hmm. right and then you build a house for them yeah. 30 kilometers away from yeah. work mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and then number 3 you build a bunch of houses like the rgp program in south africa builds a bunch of houses and there's no school in sight there's no church there's no park um and then 10 years down the line 
that community is on SABC News and they, it's like, oh, this community has the highest homicide crime. rate, the highest crime rate, right. the highest rate, right. the highest everything. And then it's like, what's wrong with those people? I'm like, what's wrong with the people who designed a community without a park, without a school, without job opportunities, mm-hmm. without economic basis? What do you expect to happen mm-hmm. in that community? So what people don't realize is the power that design and architecture has uh, Churchill best puts it when he says we shape our buildings thereafter they shape who we are. So apartheid government shaped South Africa, you know, back in the 1970s and with uh, 1950s with all these townships. Until today, you can almost tell where a person is from based on their skin color. Mm. Apartheid is over, but the neighborhoods haven't changed, mm-hmm. right? So same thing with the uh, government programs that they're using to sort of design homes for low-income communities, which are one-size-fits-all and don't have any communal uh, aspects to, to them. You're designing for people to fail. You're designing for high crime rates. You're designing for rape. You're designing for all these things. And this also happened in America mm-hmm. with the quote-unquote called projects. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, from Brooklyn to Detroit and different places. And a lot of them have been demolished now because... They had, they built these giant flats, right? And um, there was like one entrance in and one entrance out. So if the gangsters took care of the entrances, uh, parents were scared to send their kids to school. Um, and people were getting mugged at the door. So as a result of that, it led to high obesity level within the African-American communities. It's had to high unemployment uh, high crime rates, etc. So, like these, these are all things that were designed, and it's because people were never really consulted in the designing of their own homes and their own communities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the the problem lies. So, if we want to help people living in informal settlements and and shanty towns, the first step is to work with them and let them be the lead architects in designing of their own communities. Mm-hmm. Actually, Wendy, where are you now? I'm in Durban, South Africa, right now. I so wait, so. Y- Ubuntu, who else is on the team at Ubuntu? Because I feel like somebody, I learned about it through this guy who's in Boston right now. Why am I forgetting his name? Mm-hmm. But is it was it just started by you or do you have anybody else that you're running it with? Well, I started Ubuntu Design Group back in 2015, you know, sort of being spurred uh, inspired by having come from an informal settlement and wanting to come back and change that, especially in South Africa and around the world. Yeah. And sort of to use architecture as a positive uh, tool rather than just a commodity for the 10% rich people in the world, right. which is what it's currently being used for, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since then, I've had, you know, numerous, I mean, I've had an, a lot of people work with, uh, work with me in the in this project and ubuntu is i am because we are so it's not about me right yeah. it's about collaboration working yeah. with other like-minded change makers so i've had i think uh over 56 uh volunteers who've worked with me from uh over four four continents and um i have a, a dynamic team which is based out of uh south africa america and poland right now that's currently as working on making things happen. Because I feel like I'd heard about Ubuntu a while ago, and then that's awesome, yeah. But there's two Ubuntus, though. There's Ubuntu, there's there's Ubuntu Design Group, which is um, what we do, 
Um, and then there's uh, Ubuntu, the Linux software, okay. <laughs> the computer software. I see, I see. So just just making sure that you know, I got the that right clarification. Okay, yeah. One one has a lot of millions of dollars, and then the other one doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, the, that's the difference. Got it. Yeah, kind of like transitioning from in terms of like my question: How do we mm-hmm. support people living in informal settlements without being paternalistic? And how do we be better neighbors? And I think your your um, company is addressing that. If you could tell us more about your work and um, the kind of impact you've had so far and the lessons you've learned working in, in this space. So you're asking me to brag about our work. Okay. Yes. I'm delighted. <laughs> um, well, Ubuntu Design Group, you know, is divided into two sections. There's Ubuntu Home and there's Ubuntu Architecture. So Ubuntu Home came about as a result of us realizing that, okay, there's a problem, a huge problem of the 90% of uh, the world which is not being taken care of within, you know, the, the normal architecture framework. And a lot of these social housing projects have failed because they haven't considered, you know, people's uh, interests and, and how they want to live. They haven't consulted the people. Number two, uh, they designed these boxes that are hard to expand on, which force people to stay within a lower income bracket. And then number three, they design homes without designing uh, commercial components, which would enable people to financially sustain themselves. So with us understanding that a house does not take a person out of poverty because you cannot eat the brick and mortar of the house, we have designed Ubuntu Home. Ubuntu Home is a home with a commercial space, a commercial component. for our pilot family, which was a disabled family in Umbumbulu, we built a home and the commercial space was a daycare or a creche. And uh, the reason why it was a daycare is because Mrs. Charlie, uh, our pilot family, had worked in a day- daycare for 10 years. So she's now operating a daycare out of her own home. She's got 12 kids that go to this daycare, which means 12 mothers can now go to work as they send their kids to school. And now they've doubled their income and they used the money from the daycare They'll be able to use the money, the models that set up that they will be able to use money from the daycare to pay off the mortgage of building that house. So it is financially sustainable for the family. It's financially sustainable for the lender and it works. And also the house is designed to anticipate growth over time. So we want these people to move from low income to middle income to high income. So we designed the house to anticipate that. And as they grow in income, but also as they grow in numbers. Mm-hmm. So that's what Ubuntu Home is. And uh, people who are interested in being a part of Ubuntu Home and investing in this, there's uh, different ways you can get involved. You could be an impact investor, uh, you could be a surety partner, and you can learn more about these ways of how to get involved on our website at uh, ubuntudesigngroup.com. And then Ubuntu Architecture is the architecture and design wing of Ubuntu, where we want to work with uh, businesses, nonprofits, foundations, uh, who are wanting to build or who are wanting to build or develop any particular area with social impact mm. if they can prove that that particular development that they are trying to do or project that they're doing can impact the low income families or low income communities education health uh, and job creation or housing we're willing to work with them and we this is a more competitive 
outside of Ubuntu Design Group where we don't just take any projects and we, we have some of the most talented young architects around the world who are spending their time wanting to make an impact. So we don't design just luxurious buildings, but like maybe someone who would approach us to say, I want to build a school for girls in Kenya. And then we will want to engage that person. Uh, and we will design it in a unique way where the wall will be more than just a wall. It's, the wall. Can the wall also be a map of Africa? Can you walk into the space and feel like you're in Kenya? Can you walk into the space and learn about Kenya? So we want to do projects like that from architectural scale, like a school to designing whole communities. And so we're looking for different companies and different organizations who are looking to do that. And that's what Ubuntu architecture exists to do. Awesome. Um... And and when when we first met, we talked about rural studio because when when you told me what you did, I was like, this sounds so much right, like rural studio. So for people who are on yeah, the video, um, yeah. rural studio is a I don't know, would you say a project or a program or it's a it's, a, part uh, of it's the, a program of the architecture school in urban um um yeah, in Alabama, Alabama. You know, yes yeah. Yeah, so it was essentially started to kind of, it's like a living experiment for architecture students to go into the community because uh, neighboring communities are kind of low income. A lot of people didn't have like housing and or, or good housing. Um, so the director of the program at that time was interested in making architecture like more than just like building fancy places. He really wanted architecture to impact um, communities and leave a lasting impact and uh, rural studio is a project that kind of that started out using um commonplace like not fancy building material kind of like almost like scrap material um to build people homes and and trying to make it cost efficient and and still like great and 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 meet the and meet the residents' needs. And I think that's a really important part of like building for low-income people because like some people think, oh, because they're low-income, they should just take whatever they get and they don't yeah. realize mm -hmm. that everybody needs dignity. Everybody deserves to live in a, in a space that makes them happy, that is mm -hmm. safe. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like it's not... Right. Our, our thinking around poverty and... and Mm -hmm. Helping people is always, oh, this person should manage or this person should take whatever they get. We, we yeah. don't think about people's yeah. dignity. And I think that's very important. Um, I was reading an article about this this architect from India, Bal Krishna Doshi, who won the Prichta mm -hmm. Architectural Prize this year for his low-cost housing um, design in India. And the fact that... His designs has been one of the few designs that have worked because number one, he thought about like the dignity of the people who would live in that space. Mm -hmm. And usually, when you think of low income housing, you think of like all this like tight, you know, airless, like depressing, you know, structures. And he made his low income like living community like open. There are like places for people to play. It's also um built around a central spine to accommodate businesses. So when when you talked about how like your building or your design principle for for um low income income house housing takes into consideration like businesses too because a lot of low income people like their businesses are from their homes. Mm -hmm. Um and like supporting that. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I thought I thought that was a great a great aspect. Um um I mean 
And so my brother is an architect and sometimes we have these conversations to, um, so he works in the States, but also like, you know, does private stuff, you know, back home too. And what, what I'm finding, and, and I, I think for anyone listening is affluence, affluence should never deplete your sense of humanity. I think one of the biggest issues that we're seeing here is that people think that other people's lives are not necessarily important um, or not valued enough um, that they're deserving um, of just like basic human rights. Like, <laughs> like, and, and, and that's, mm-hmm. that's completely ridiculous. And even if we take it out of the um, informal settlement situation, I, I know times when, you know, in in their architectural life, I guess you know you have r- rules and regulations of you know if you you can't put a window in this space or you can't put a door in this space or I mean they they have regulations and they have guidelines. Um, but what you find is even people in Nigeria who are not you know building for informal settlements, they're just building to house people. Um, because we're in this survivalist mentality, it's like okay, I have like this wide space of land and ideally based on the guidelines i should only be able to have 10 blocks of flats but i'm going to end up with like 15 and a half right because i'm trying to make enough money Uh so i'm just completely ignoring um people's breathing space i'm ignoring like just little things that are that are necessary and so when we think of yes they're informal settlements and yes maybe they there are no deeds or there's no guidelines behind them in the same way there are also no guidelines for the way a lot of architects build things and i think that there needs to be some some sense of responsibility um to all the other architects or urban designers and and, and people who who this is their job and who have rules and who have regulations and they need to be held accountable to, um, or for the, the ways that people are living. And I think it's just ridiculous, um, that because someone is able to pay you X, Y, and Z amount of money that you'll make certain compromises in your practice just because you want to, you know, get a job. I think that's just ridiculous. So that was my two cents. I totally agree. And, uh, I think one of the bigger problems is this whole system of bidding, mm. Yeah. Uh, bidding and bidding goes to the lowest bidder, yeah true right? mm-hmm. so what that does is the guy who compromises the design most and takes out the most things is often the guy who's going to win the bid and that's really forces a lot of architects to make um, decisions that are not necessarily at the community's best interest just so that they could get that job and um, that's that's part of the problem why you have these types of designs and buildings and communities which are deteriorating and not really suited for the people that live there. Hmm. Um, what was the question again? Okay, so... Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think when did we touch on this earlier um, when he brought up consultation... Um, I think that's one way of minimalizing a paternalistic approach is asking what people need um, and find out if they even need um, any help, actually. Um, um, Because it's one thing to assume that, oh, just because you wouldn't live the way somebody lives, that doesn't mean they're not fine with the way that they're living. And even if the issue is there's some environmental issue, I think there's a way to do it because in reading how, I think it's Otodo Bame, the settlement that was demolished, like just the ethics around that in of itself, just 
forcefully evicting people and not giving them not making any temporary accommodations for them or any compensation, things like that is just so that's something else to consider, just like doing things ethically, which I mean, I can only speak to Lagos, just the system is so corrupt. Um, so that's just even a bigger topic to even tackle. Um but it's yeah, it's consultation and it goes back to what Ife, you know, also we've has come up over and over again, but intentionality. Okay, sure, you want to do this, but how are you going to go about it in a way that's ethical and is sustainable? Mm-hmm. Because it's easy to be like, oh, you know, relocate you guys, put you somewhere. But like Wandele was saying, no, there are no schools. Um, there's just no thought giving into it. And in the TED Talk that um, Olutumayin gave, she was like, Pe- poor people are people. <laughs> and so that's one thing that I think needs to you know, govern the way we approach people in informal sentiments, settlements is that they're also people. And, you know, if you're in their shoes, how would you want to be approached? It's empathy. Yeah. <laughs> empathy is a big thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how would, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to just forcefully evict me and not give me, you know, not even consult me, talk to me, give me notice, give me temporary accommodation, relocate me, nothing like that. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's wild. The things that can, that happen in Lagos and just elsewhere too. It's just, yeah. Something that just came to my mind about, about what you said and other places too. And like Grenfell Tower, for example, that I happened was, in yeah. like the Butchers Borough mm, in yeah. London. The Grenfell yeah, Tower, the Grenfell Tower fire, mm-hmm. and the fact that you know we we as as a society hate poor people so much that even yeah. despite complaints, like using substandard material, um, and despite people's complaints that oh this this there had been fire like little fires I think mm-hmm. at, at Grenfell before the major one, and nobody thought it was mm. you know something to look deeper into nobody mm-hmm. it was just, oh like poor people well they can go fuck themselves like if yeah. they die they die i guess mm-hmm. yeah and the fact that even after the fire all the families are still not rehoused and it's been over a year mm-hmm. that's and people are ridiculous. some people are still living in hotels and some people were like oh you get rehoused like in a different city they're trying to rehouse people outside london when before <laughs> they lived in you know in the heart of London. Right. Had jobs that they had to go to. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's, mm-hmm. it's so, and this is something that really frustrates me. It's like, I mean, you see this in the States and you see it in, in other places, you know, this suburban migration. And I feel like with us, what's really irritating is, so you had this migration of people who are maybe used to like old monies living in Kedja and all these places moving over to the island. So Ikoi, VI, Leki. And now it's like, oh, we need to expand more. So, we're now going to encroach on the space of these people who are already here before we were here, but because we don't consider where they leave to be legal um, or that they have uh, the, the right documents to be here, then we're going to overshadow them and take their space. So you moved out and then moved in. It, it's just, I, I don't understand this. Yeah, but I was also thinking about like, okay, so now we know about Otodogwame, we know about Makoko, like how do we even, so you know, what can I, like I agree with the with your sentiment, where like is are they looking for you to support them? <laughs> First of all, you know, don't go with the assumption that. But like, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys I think? think? Yeah, because I think 
they may not be looking for help, but I think there are other ways of improving. Uh, like, cause I think I've heard somewhere that they even have schools in those settlements, like there, there are systems in place. So finding out like, okay, if they're not seeking help in, I don't know, maybe relocation, maybe they need help in other ways. Like, I don't know. Supporting them in the way that they want. So maybe their schools needs, you know, certain support. Maybe they need teachers. Maybe they need, I don't know. No, it goes to the consultation, but also with Otodogbame, it's like those people were evicted not because there was, it was an event, like there was something harming them and so they needed to be evicted. It, it was for profit. So a lot of times mm-hmm. people don't do things if there's no financial gain. Um, yeah. but yours, you can say what you want to say first. Yeah, I was going to say one one thing that came to mind is how to like empower them to have political clout. Yes, mm-hmm. you know how to like help them understand navigating politics and like advocating for themselves on behalf of their own communities. Do you understand what I was like? Mm-hmm. Getting getting the powers that be to pay attention to them and pay attention to what they need and supporting them in that regard is, is one thing that just like kind of like came to me as I was thinking what? about this because I don't know what they need. I don't know they're like, do you understand what I'm saying? But then if they have the, the, the tools to advocate for themselves and demand what they need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one of the articles talked about, you know, that the leaders in their communities were rounded up before the this happened. Yeah. And that if those people were there, it probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, they, they probably do have people who are advocates for them. But it's like, how do you empower them to the point where they're not being oppressed by the police or, you know, these higher powers that be? I think that that's another issue. And I think, you know there needs to be some type of legislation that is put in place where yes, we might refer to them technically as informal settlements, but it's like, okay, now they've claimed this portion of water. (laughs) I was going to say parcel of land, but they've claimed this portion of water. So how do we protect informal settlements legally when they come up? You know, because these people do have structures like they have, they have ways that they build. It's not like it's just a random puts one here, puts one here, puts one here. Like, they they have systems, right? So it's like, there has Mm -hmm. to be some type of legislation that goes into place that says you cannot just kick people off of this... I keep wanting to say plot of land. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying. this Mm -hmm. space, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, So let's close with this question. What is our vision for African cities? What what are we... What do we want our cities to be like? Hmm... I think I would say that I want our cities to have spaces that are that are not only um no, let me rephrase it this way. I would like for African cities to be designed in a way where there are spaces for different types of communities to exist and thrive, such that, you know, the the indication of progress or growth is not just having um, mega cities that are filled with lights and, you know, all the glamour oh. that's Western looking um, or towards the Western gaze, but that also makes spaces for people like these who, um, you know, are working you know whose 
who have built their lives around their work um, to to equally thrive and, and exist and, and it be okay um, and not be bullied into, you know, transforming those spaces into places for affluent individuals so they can, I don't know, make themselves feel good about their egos. I don't know. <sighs> My vision for African cities. I love what um, Olutume said in her TED talk that like Lagos doesn't need to be the new Dubai. Like no, it doesn't. It, uh, it, it, it just needs to function. Yeah, <laughs> function. It just needs to. Lagos needs to. My vision for cities is for them to function at their best selves, and that doesn't mean looking like some other city. It just means working properly in a way that doesn't diminish its character or what makes it unique you know but allowing those things to work properly and for those things to be organized and i love what <laughs> that TED talk i really liked it. it's like she was also talking about like it was a you know talk. like yeah. city like you know city should be a place where everybody belongs and this concept of belonging and who belongs um and I, and i think i'm going to include that in my vision for african cities like you know for it to be unique and stay true to its cultural, you know, all the things that make it that city, but for it to be organized and functional, um, but also for those spaces to be um, spaces where others can belong, regardless of class and all of that. I agree. Yay! Welcome welcome back! (laughs) Good timing! Great timing! So perfect. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, No worries. My phone, which I'm using for hotspot. uh, Yeah. (laughs) What had happened was Mm. it's it's died even though I had it like plugged in for charging. Oh, snap. No, so I just changed the charger to something else, but yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so we were we were wrapping up, and we were, and I just asked, "What's our vision for the African what for African cities? What what do we want African cities to be like, to look like?" To... Wakanda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. I think the vision for African cities is the vision that I would have for any city. For that city to authentically reflect the people's culture and shared values mm-hmm. of that particular community. Mm. You see, when you go to Rome, you know you're in Rome. Right. Right? When you go to Paris, you know you're in Paris. But when you go to some of the colonized African cities that we live in today, you feel like you're in Paris on one street, you're in Rome on the other street. China and the other. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Mm. <laughs> so, I, so, whether it be sort of the city in that large scale or the the housing and the communities uh i just want those communities to be designed and suited for the local climate for the local culture and for the local people let's stop colonial architecture Uh let's (laughs) let's start generating african architecture and that's what i'm really interested in, in in doing when you look at actually african architecture like the Rondavels or the roundhouses, um, which are across every African culture, mm. for the most part, you realize that those were actually the most sustainable homes mm. for yeah. us mm-hmm. within our yeah. climate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's because you know, with the grass thatch that allowed for ventilation, uh, so the the home was cool uh, during the summer and warm during the winter, and it was readily 
uh, it was made of readily available materials, which was like mud break. Mm-hmm. And then it was continually renewed every couple of months. Yeah. As in, uh, so we didn't have, housing was not expensive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we used local materials. We didn't have problems with po- pollution mm-hmm. the same way we do today. We didn't have all this global warming the same way we do today because we used, you know, African materials which were sustainable that worked for us. The problem came when we started adopting European architecture, mm-hmm. uh, which was quote-unquote called development. <laughs> but now all these side effects uh, are happening. Um, and I think it's time we go back to who we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's really awesome. good. Awesome. Uh, my vision for for African cities, for Lagos, for example, is that like things should just like Ipewa said, let things just work. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a city that has affordable transportation that is that's connected well, a city that caters to the um, most vulnerable people and makes sure that they have the basics of life. There's there's water. There's good sanitation. There is. Um, affordable housing um that everybody can can live every type of person can live and 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 be happy and be safe yeah. um that's my that's my vision for an african city and also you know you, you you've all said you've said it all but that includes our culture that's that um yeah I, for me, it's just mostly a city that works. Like, mm. give me high high speed rail. Give me constant <laughs> power, please. Give me a street good Wi Fi. <laughs> <laughs> like Wi Fi, I can I can even say maybe Wi Fi is a luxury. You know, I can mm. I can sort out Wi Fi myself. But like drainage, I can't sort out the drainage mm. <laughs> situation. Yeah. I can't sort out the, the waste collection situation myself. I can't, mm. you know, like. Mm-hmm. Just basic shit. <laughs> Can it work, please, for everybody? And you know, like because for for real, like Lagos, there's some people that are not living in my Lagos. So mm. there's some people that have like twenty four seven power because yeah. they have they live yeah. in serviced apartments with solar panels. They mm-hmm. have like you know good drainage. Like yeah, so just like. Let the basics be available to everyone, please. Oh, also, can I... Wait, how is Lagos? Like, you guys make me really interested. Like, you should visit. <laughs> no. You should definitely visit. So there's half the city which has, you know, constant power drainage and everything, and then the other half is... So it's not, it's not, it's not like... <laughs> It's if not, I clarify, it's not a it's not a clear like delineation. There's not a clear strata. What I said, like there are different Lagoses. I just mean like there are pockets of the city mm-hmm. that yeah. have those amenities agree, like constantly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, like um, the richer parts of 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 Lagos, will you call the island a richer part? I don't even know how to. It depends on where you are in the now. island. Even island exactly. get level. Yeah. Yeah. It exactly. does. It does. Island get level. But mm-hmm. like there are there pockets of Lagos where things mm-hmm. like that work, and right beside it, because those people need people to like they employ people. You know, you mm-hmm. can't you can't mm-hmm. all live in this like gated community or whatever. Like, where would your nannies live? Where mm-hmm. would your going back to that thing mm-hmm. about like labor and like not really caring the mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. where quote-unquote your labor like lives you just you just care that they're you know making your life easier you don't give a fuck about their Mm -hmm. own lives um Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah i was just gonna say sorry as a follow-up you got over here by the way um 
I think another really important thing is that we as everyday individuals who are obviously not involved in like urban planning and buildings and stuff like that, we need to sensitize ourselves to mm. to to certain things, you know. So when I hear that, oh, there's going to be an eco-Atlantic and I know there's mm-hmm. clearly no land, so they're dredging. Um, mm-hmm. I need I need to ask more questions like okay so where are you dredging who are the people that are going to be affected whose lifestyle is going to be affected yeah. by this yeah. I don't know whatever city that you're trying to build to resemble mm-hmm. Dubai like who who are the people mm-hmm. like we need to ask more questions and put more pressure yeah. um on architects and planners to make sure that they they're taking into account you know people's lives and as we said empathy at the end of the day like you're 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 responsible for a lot of people's lives with the actions that you're making. And yes, you are making money, but at the same time, you know, people are losing their lives, you know, by the way mm. that you're dredging. So, yeah. Mm. Amen. Attend those public meetings. Mm. Uh, we need to attend those public meetings, vote, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, get involved. Yeah. So we just... laugh because in Lagos, do we have... <laughs> Do they consult the public on anything? I mean, there there might be. They're just not oh like God. publicized or anything. Yeah, yeah. there might mm, be. Maybe by law maybe. they might have yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, you know, tear a book from the South Africans' uh, way of life. Go and protest in the streets all day until yes. they get you involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Protesting. All right. All right. Um, thank so you so much for being on the part- here. Yes, thank you. So we're at the part of the episode where we talk about um, what we're reading, watching, listening to. We kind of share recommendations or just, you know, update people on the media we're consuming. Um, if you're reading anything interesting that you'd like people to check out or listening to anything or watching anything. Does anyone want to go? We haven't done this for like two episodes, so I feel like... We should do this one. We should do it for this one. Um, yeah, for me, one, I'm, I'm happy you, you asked this question now because I just finished reading a book by an, an African. <laughs> so this is great. This is great. I, I just finished The Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela, my icon and role model. And I would suggest anyone and everyone to read that book it has changed it's like it has given me a paradigm shift mm. on just life and everything like on you know sacrificing your life for what you really believe in mm-hmm. which is uh in his case equality and freedom for all um just such a huge blessing uh it would also make you complain less about your life <laughs> mm. uh so yeah definitely long walk to freedom for anyone who's of being a leader or who has something that they're passionate about and want to really invest their time in. Uh, it's a thick one, right? I, re- I remember seeing the memo once and I was like, why is this book so heavy? <laughs> <laughs> and that discouraged me, but it's been on my list for a while to read, so thanks for the recommendation. I'm not a good, I'm not a good reader. Like, I... I suck and I'm slow because I want to understand every line and etc. Mm. But I picked this book up literally and it's probably like the fifth book that I've or the fourth book that I've finished. Mm-hmm. And I finished it in four days and it's like mm. got tons of pages. There's <laughs> a lot of pages. But I must say though, I neglected everything. I, I woke up from eight to eight just reading mm. the book wow. okay. for those four days. That's how exciting it is Man, you better be a good leader now after that wow 
<laughs> I <so> hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. I'll keep it. I think, yeah. I think I need to read it every two weeks, you know? <laughs> uh, Yeka O, I am currently, it's November, so I'm currently watching all the Christmas movies that exist on Hallmark and Netflix. Um, okay, additionally, no, please judge. That's okay. I'm I'm proud. I'm not ashamed. This is who I am, and God loves me all the same. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely watching a lot of Christmas movies. Um, and I'm also listening a lot to Famuleya's The High Life EP. It's just a four track EP, but la- ladies and gents, that man is talented. Um, and if you don't know who Woo-hoo. he is, you listen to him every time you listen to our podcast. So yeah, mm, loving loving his EP. Yeah. Sorry, before I share mine, Wendele, I'm actually curious, is, are there any South African artists that, do you like, if you like music and you're, you know, plugged into the music scene, are there people we should be, do you have any recommendations Brain, for yeah. us? <laughs> oh. What is, what is that laugh? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Uh, I'll give a, a, a big shout out to my boy. Oh. Q. Q. Uh, from Destruction Boys. All right, Q. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they just released a new album. Uh, they were launching it out here in Durban mm. on Thursday uh, called It Was All a Dream. Mm. So definitely check that out. Uh, house Music, Boom. Oh. They're the ones who did the song Omunya Pes Gomunya and uh, Wololo, which was on Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. So those guys are great. Uh, and then um, J. Cole. Uh, definitely check out Jaco South Africa in America. Anyway, get your life. Hey, you gotta balance it out. Shit, okay? shit, shit, shit. So South African, you take out check out the Destruction Boys. Okay. In America, check out J Cole and Lecrae, and then you're good. All right, sweet. Okay. Yeah. All right. This is a film. I am reading. Um, Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami. Um, he's a Japanese novelist, essayist. Um, I believe he's an essayist, or maybe he's just a novelist. Um, but I'm reading that book. I believe it's it was his first novel. Um, uh, but it's his first work of fiction that I'm reading, and I am listening to. <laughs> London, I, 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 I'm weird. Sometimes I just remember like musicians I used to listen to in college. And so I, last night started listening to London Grandma and it just took me back to my Holyoke days and, and my dorm. So yeah, that's, um, this artist, London Grandma, I'm listening to them and then watching, I just finished watching this film, Peppermint, Peppermint Candy by Lee Chang Dong. Um, and it's about this guy who it's the story is told in reverse. And so we at the beginning of the film, we see him suicidal and the film shows us how he got to that point in his life. And apparently parallels with South Korea's history and violence um, and what happened when um, their dictator was assassinated and the 1980 student riots. Um, but it was a really good film. It was confusing because the story is told backwards, um, but it was a good film. I liked how just films can be a good way to like infuse political commentary in a very creative way. But... Um, I, um, I, I finished this book recently called Educated. It's a memoir of a 
woman who lived in a fundamentalist, like Christian community. Um, she didn't go to school. She was quote on, you know, she was homeschooled and homeschooled. I'm doing air quotes because like she 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 actually did, wasn't taught anything, and um, so she lived in Ida. Is it Idaho? I think Idaho. Anyway, like there were fundamentalist Mormons and she essentially like um took the ACTs and taught herself and like went to college by her um without any like support from her family and it's just a memoir about like the trajectory of her life and her abusive like her her family dynamics and how that changed when she became educated and um, it's a very it's 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 a, it's a difficult book to read. I listen to it as an audiobook, which that's my favorite way of absorbing memoirs. Um, and it was difficult with like there's this, there's some abuse, there's like spiritual abuse, there's like mental illness, all of that in there. But it's it's riveting and very like somebody is definitely going to be listening to a movie. Um, but it just made me. It's just wild how like some people's lives are so different and so like scary this one this girl she used to work in her father's um scrapping yard and he used to like there were so many accidents her husband her um, brother fell and had head injury like at least three times somebody's arm got like burnt off like yeah that's wild anyway that's what i Aww. read recently um listen to i'm listening to some soca my current favorite soca track is called Tiny Whiny. Who's Tiny Whiny? Anyway, if you just go on Apple Music and search Tiny Whiny, it's by um, Jacques, Joaquin. No, I can't. I did not pronounce that well. By Joaquin. I'm terrible at pronunciation. And Crush Fire. So, yes, listen to some soca. So, yeah, that's it for me. Um, thank you so much, Wendili, for coming on and chatting with us and telling us about your work. And, and yeah, we really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for coming. Also, no, I, I had a, I had a great time. Thank you guys for having me here. Uh, just to give a, a quick plug in on what's coming next. Yes, for please. People who would like to follow our journey. Uh, we're releasing a book called Ubuntu in the Mumbulu. Uh, Hopefully, I can. I guess I can add that as another read that I've done. <laughs> <laughs> it's really about how we can use architecture as a vehicle uh, to enhance communities, uh, low-income communities, based on the principle that if apartheid architecture could oppress and segregate, then Ubuntu or community-led architecture can uh, liberate and enable opportunities for all. So everything we've been talking about, that book sort of tackles that. So really excited in a practical way about how we're already actually doing that. That's yeah. one. And then uh, we're releasing a film called Child of Apartheid, which follows my life for the past two years as I've been working on um, reversing the impact of apartheid architecture by using the same tool they use to destroy, which is architecture, to actually enable and bring in and bring people together. That's awesome. awesome. Thank you. So and if people like, follow my social media and website, uh, if you follow UbuntuDesignGroup.com, uh, my Instagram is Wandile7, uh, and there's some Wandile Mtiana on Facebook. If you follow that up, you'll be able to get the release dates and, and um, follow our progress. So is that Wandile number seven, or Wandile like seven in, in 
one deal in number seven, okay. like the number. Okay. Wonderful. All right, folks. I'm a seven you. out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> better than five though <laughs> hey it's all perspective right <laughs> yeah, you know. um thank you so much for joining us thank you for listening folks um yes. we'll see you in another two weeks bye, bye. 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 bye.